This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This is Will Huntsbury. Leave me your name and your number, and I'll call you back. <laughs> Have a good day. Thanks. Do you want to leave my message? Will. The mailbox is full. I oh. cannot accept any mail. <laughs> wow, Will. Way to go. Will will clear his voicemail. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief of the greatest public affairs podcast recorded in this area, Voice of San Diego. I'm joined as always by managing editor Andrea Lopez Viafania. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. And plugging in remotely, we have Andrew Keats, fellow managing editor. Hello, Andy. Uh, do you want to tell the folks why you're, why you're on a computer and not here right now? I have contracted the novel coronavirus, the, COVID-19, that, the one. The, the one that the, your immune system was previously naive to. The one that was naive to, but after a series of inoculations, I was prepared to deal with, and I feel great. Mm-hmm. But your contagion is being kept from us. Thank you. That's exactly right. Coming up on the show this week, I am calling it, you guys, the sports arena, and what will happen to the land around it that the city owns is officially. It has been deemed a San Diego special with an assist from the now mayor who coined that very term. Also, we got another window into how the long saga of another San Diego City asset, the high rise at 101 Ash Street, actually began. A former real estate chief for the city dropped some bombs about 101 Ash while under oath and will share the highlights of those And finally, reporter Will Huntsbury is going to join us to talk about a big story he shipped this week. A local senior care charity sold its property for a fraction of its worth, and then people who bought it sold it for more. Then it happened again, and some of them had some relationships with the people who originally sold it. Will's going to explain what went down. That's all coming up. Stay with us. But first... We're hosting a live event next week. Andy and I will lead a discussion about this year's election and some of the stories we're following at Voice. Our reporters will also be there to talk with you and dish about the news. It's going to be fun. Come hang out with us on Wednesday, May 4th at Cafe X in Sherman Heights. You can register for free as a member or sign up and become a member at the same time. Check it out at VOSD.org slash events. Killer. Like Killer promo. So, Scott, I saw something the other day mm-hmm. on Twitter. Yeah. On the Twitter sphere. Yeah. And I thought, oh, God, I got to send this to Scott. <laughs> like, I saw it and I thought of you instantly because I was like, he's going to have some thoughts. 
And first I thought of retweeting it and tagging you in it, but yeah. I couldn't think of anything super witty to say. Uh-huh. So I just shared it separately. Uh-huh. It's about the palm trees. Uh-huh. The outrage. The day, outrage. Day four palm tree <laughs> massacre. <laughs> palm tree gate. Yeah. So thank you for sending that. Yeah. This was KUSI is on, I don't know, multi-day coverage. breathless coverage about the murder of several palm quote unquote trees yes. in Ocean Beach. All right, let's give a sample here. This could be about lies. This could be about deceit. This could be about hidden agendas for climate change instead of airport safety. I mean, can you imagine? Here's, here's the tree they cut down earlier today. This one right here. This was of a 105-year-old tree. Hasn't really grown that much over the past 10 years. They did the measurement, but apparently, according to the San Diego Airport Authority, claiming the FAA requested this, which, by the way, we have no evidence from the FAA, that they ever knew anything about this. But the airport authority literally says if these trees are not cut down by this Friday, it could affect airport operations. So I guess this is a jack and the beanstalk thing where they're yeah. predicting. Yeah, could be so many things other than what they say it is, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. One by one, let's talk about this for a second. Okay. First, palm trees are not trees. <laughs> they are giant weeds called monocots. And let's just make that clear. They are terrible things. They they burn easily. Yeah. They create zero shade. I think they create negative shade because you expect them to create shade. And thus, the amount of shade they give you is worse than if there was no shade. Yeah. There's a shade opportunity cost. Yes. It's absolutely because they take rights of way mm-hmm. that could go to actual shade providing leafy trees or 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 carbon uh okay now you're doing your globalist you're agenda all right <laughs> yes hold on right. there yes so okay we've established that they are they are subspecies of trees yeah. that's fine right okay. so I, I appreciate that you started here scott because my impulse is just to, to clown on this as a segment to clown on this as a topic of, yeah. of it but worthy of attention but that's a difficult position to for for us for for me to be in mm-hmm. because you've so identified yourself <laughs> as an enemy of palm trees already yeah that that it must i i would be going head to head with you to even claim that this is something that that doesn't deserve uh the, you know a moment's notice no it it you're i think you're right everybody's right about that but I, I just I, I will cop to taking advantage of the opportunity to make my point about the evil origins of the palm tree and their plans <laughs> for our society, which is to burn it down and to, you know, Offer cause no problems and, yeah. and, and drop things on people's heads all the time. So that said, now, where does this come from? Sometimes when the airport is worried about the weather, they change the directions of the planes. They usually take off to the west and they change it to come take off or come take off to the east and land from the west. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, they they have to use a lot of instrument approaches. They use their instruments as, appro- as opposed to their eyes. And the the airport authority claims that through their surveying which they do if you live near an airport or if you're doing building near an airport anyway you are always aware of the crazy regulations that come with the airspace around it they say these trees have now penetrated the area where those instruments are sensitive and they need to be cut and that's the it's there's nothing else to it than that now well i love i love that that plant doesn't even pretend to offer an alternative theory like yeah he's just like look how can these trees hit a plane it's like that's not it's, the issue. It's the, la- it's the laziest level of conspiracy theorizing I've ever seen. Typically, a conspiracy theory goes through the motions of proposing an alternative explanation. Right. This one, he he just hand waves like there might be another explanation. I know it's not this one. Yeah. The one that they've offered is unreal. <laughs> the real one is yeah, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. But they just he, hate he can't, be, he can't be bothered to do his own fake work. But I got I got to say, okay, so Andy knows, like, I have a strong fear for flying. Like, even just talking about planes right now is, like, stressing me really? out. Really? Yeah. I just, mm-mm. Okay. I do not like them. 
So just even let's go with like the thing that like, okay, these palm trees in some way are going to hurt these instruments, right? That's what they're saying. Or, uh, okay, maybe they're so high they're going to touch the airplane, which is not true. Right. But just the the possibility that these palm trees could impact airplanes in any way that would cause them to crash. It makes it worse for you. It makes it worse for me. <laughs> like, just cut down all the palm trees. All the trees. Like, I don't want any airplane yeah. to have any issues. <laughs> like, it just it stresses me out. No, I think yeah. that's part of it, right? There is a... There is a zero tolerance for risk in these situations, yeah, right? They're always on. they're always like basically like if there's anything that makes it a problem, we have to cut it down. And remember they had the whole thing about the building in uh, Kearney Mesa that was a little too tall. They had to take the top two floors off of it because even though it wasn't anywhere close to where the planes actually land, it caused this disruption, similar type of problem. And all of the conspiracy theorists were all on board with that back then, but now the, the reasoning is all crazy. So can I just- I love, I love the idea that it would be like, that yeah, to the, to the extent that he musters any sort of other explanation, it's like, it's probably this silly climate change hoax, you know? <laughs> but like that, that, <laughs> that all they could bother themselves with was five trees. Yeah, They're like for for the yeah, sake of our obscene climate change agenda, let's take it tear down these five <laughs> trees and only these five trees on a street with dozens of palm trees, yes. but just these five. That's that's the like our overpowering ty- tyrannical uh, climate change agenda. We will reach down and grab five trees. Yeah, I I love to that. To be, be replanted with other trees. I love that because that's I think it came from the city's suggestion demented. that yes, we will it's take demented. down these trees but we will put actual shade providing trees yeah. according to our own climate action plan because like, aha, keeping, aha. yeah, and that and that that's like oh, we got them. They're actually doing some weird power play with climate change. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you're right. We're going to pick this little part of Ocean Beach where people are pretty active about how things change. And that's where we're yeah. gonna we're gonna put our foot in the door of this climate change agenda for for five trees, for five trees <laughs> again. But like, if you're telling me that having all of the palm trees in the world, yeah, or cutting down all the palm trees in the world, but me surviving in an airplane, making sure that like no instruments are messed up, that's the option I would go yeah, for. Yeah, right. So keep, like, but sure. keep in mind. But but keep in mind, Andrea, they don't believe that that's real. <laughs> that's it's 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 not about that. It's really the the tyrannical climate change agenda well and it's the, the, it's five the Lu- tre- for, for five these five trees. and it's the scott lewis agenda which is that these are awful trees yeah. not quote, trees uh-huh. they make a mess they start on fire really easy they use too much water and they don't provide any shade they are useless except for that people who have come from minnesota look at them and they're like wow we're in a place with palm trees that's the only value of them and there's too many of them they're filled with rats they get ivy sometimes it's just okay. a mess Wanted to get a bit of an update. We talked about the sports arena site. The city owns 50 acres of land or so there and had five bidders for what they would do to that land. The city staff said we'd like to get that down to three because we have to prioritize affordable housing. Whenever we get rid of land, the state says there's a law that says you have to prioritize affordable housing developers when you're offering to sell or lease this sort of land. And you have to prioritize the people who say they're going to build the most affordable housing. So we have to give it to these three bidders, the top one at the best, but the other two are there if they need it, if they, if they, if they, if we need them. And that was their argument. But they also said, but all that said, we are prioritizing affordable housing and a new arena. That uh, an arena is is part of the the core requirements of this, even though the core requirement undoubtedly, unquestionably, is affordable housing. An arena is also so. City staff did that, presented it to the city council, San Diego City Council's land use and housing committee, th- and through that, the land use and housing committee of the city council may have delivered the biggest direct official rebuke to Mayor Todd Gloria that I have seen yet uh, as he tried to do something important and, 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 you know, 
something that would advance a, a very large part of what he's trying to achieve? And they just said no. So uh, let me try to justify that claim. So at this discussion, the, the city staff tried to make the case that the, these three top bidders are who they would want to go with. And remember last week we talked about how one of the bidders, or all three of those bidders that they want to shortlist would, would build an entirely new sports arena, not try to rehabilitate it. And that one of the two that didn't get into the final actually had more affordable housing units than, the three, than one of the three that did. But because they didn't have a good enough plan to build an arena, they got left off that list. So the city council's land use and housing committee basically says, like, how can you ask us to make this decision to do this shortlist that you're talking about when you've done nothing to truly investigate these plans and these proposals to verify, A, that they actually add as much affordable housing as they say they do and not by taking money away from other affordable housing efforts around the city, and B, that they have the money and financing ability to do all these things, and and C, that they are actually able to pull this off. And if until you do that investigation, how can you ask us to literally eliminate two of these bidders? And the city staff, I got to say, their best response was, well, I don't know, man. <laughs> they... Yeah. And, and, and this is, you know, it's an, it's an important point by, the, by the, the folks on the committee because this has been a truth that's been beneath all of this discussion since the bidding started and including all the way back the first time, you know, prior to the 2020 election, which is, you know, it's like the saying, you can indict a ham sandwich, ham sandwich. you can promise anything in an RFP proposal, right? Like, or in, in response to an RFP putting together a package of pretty pictures that says what you're going to do is a far cry from conducting a rigorous economic feasibility study that demonstrates that there's going to be a market for the things that you say you're going to do, that it's going to provide sufficient profitability, that you we believe you will be able to finance it, and that your means of doing so are such that it doesn't borrow from some other uh, type of, of affordable housing that we're already likely to provide elsewhere in the city. And if you don't do all of that work, then like a lot of this is make-believe. And so we sort of are at the point where everyone is conceding that up until now, this has been a kind of a game of charades. I think what emerged as the city staff started to realize that this wasn't going to go forward was that they were not going to be able to get down to one bidder one developer of this land before the November 22 ballot. So they want to get on the ballot because they need to raise the height limit again to get rid of the height limit in that area so they can build all these things that are being proposed. And they wanted to have gotten to one at that point so that that group and its vision could help sell the change to the height limit, right? Mm -hmm. And the city staff was basically like, you're, you're asking us to double the amount of work that we're going to do, and we're not going to be able to finish that before the end of the year. And a natural question would have been like, so? Yeah. But And the answer would have been, well, that means we can't do this ballot measure. But everybody knew that that's what that meant. That's part mm-hmm. of what you, if you, you, know, you follow these meetings, you're understanding what's, what's going on there. And I think that um, it just, it's, it, that's why I think this was such a massive rebuke of the mayor, because his entire plan now for getting this over the finish line has been scuttled. And that's why I think this is now officially a San Diego special because this will be the third time that this whole thing has been scuttled and has to be restarted, right? So I think um, another angle that we talked about was like how weird it was that they're emphasizing a sports arena be built there, right? Mm -hmm. Remember the only reason to build it there is because there's one already there. And the only reason there's one already there is because of some really disgusting historical racism and other issues, right? And so they have insisted that there needs to be a sports arena there. And there was a kind of, we're kind of wondering just how important that was to them. And that this process revealed that it was extremely important. It actually, they wanted to get rid of one of the bidders who couldn't prove they would do a new one very well. And so I thought this was the most definitive take yet from a city official. This is uh, Councilman 
Joe LaCava saying that he hears he there was a lot of people at the committee like why are you focusing at all on an arena we need housing housing is the most important thing uh, and you know Ricardo Flores wrote an op-ed for us about that like this used to be a neighborhood should be a neighborhood again that should be the priority here was Joe LaCava's response to that I actually kind of agree with you about the sports arena but that debate has been risen and resolved and a sports arena is going to be part of this project so um, we're not going to go backwards uh, in that conversation. Yeah, like we're not going to go backwards. First of all, I don't, nothing's been resolved. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. I don't recall that. I, I actually have no memory of there being a debate about whether there should be a sports arena here. Now, it could be the case that that has been an internal debate that occurred. But really, like it seems relatively new that anyone even floated the idea. Yeah, I, I, it is weird to be like, yeah, we've we've hammered that discussion and debate so long. I'm done with it. We're not going to go back through that. Like, what? What discussion about that? Like, I bet the podcast here has been the only like substantive talk about that, right? Yeah, maybe that's what he means. Like, three yeah. idiots over on one ten West A Street have had this conversation. Um, excuse me, Andy. Three. <laughs> Sorry, two idiots. Yeah. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, yeah, I no, I, it, like the the Measure E debate in about the coastal height limit back in 2020, I have no recollection of should that happening. I know. It's just, maybe it, I forget. I it's almost know. like the status quo bias is so powerful that you just think it's been resolved in everybody's now, head. Well, yeah. And if the spirit of what he's saying is let's be real, we don't have time yeah. or, or the, or the civic ability to litigate that question. And we're moving forward with the presumption that there will be an arena here. I mostly agree. Yeah, no, that's that, that, that's, that'd be that seems, that'd be an intellectually yeah, that, that, honest, fine thing to say. Yeah, and and maybe that's the that's what he intends to say. Okay, all right. Well, then he said something else that I think we need to capture. Now he was the only vote to be clear supporting the mayor's, or at least opposing the rebuke to the mayor that this council that this council committee delivered, and he said then something else though, given again that context. That I think was a pretty, when you think about it, strong shot at the mayor. Um, and I have, uh, admittedly, a little bit of a concern that that the city itself is being more influenced by the projects that are on the table, not driving the conversation within the parameters of this Surplus Lands Act and the decision to include the sports arena, as opposed to focusing on the partner. He went on to point out, he's like, I would rather you be driving this, the city, as opposed to the projects. And again, I think that's a pretty significant indictment of the mayor's approach to leadership on this and other issues, which is that they're acting like they don't have a say in this. And yet then they're pointing out that they do have a say. They want to they wanna like craft it in a in a passive way right and this is another theme we've touched on remember when he was like we have no say on what's going to go on the ballot we don't want to make a decision about whether we support this or that tax because we don't we you know we're going to wait to see if it gets on the ballot well the mayor has an actual place in deciding what gets on the ballot politically and over and over again he's punting this sort of initiative to developers or just this other these other interest groups and it's it's kind of getting to be a theme I, th I mean i think it's a theme even not just with him with the city of san diego i mean if you think about uh like sdsu west and soccer city before it like the city of san diego played virtually no role whatsoever in dictating what it wanted to see there two outside groups one a public uh, you know group of friends of the university and one of just a group of investors came forward with their ideas and then voters got to choose between those ideas basically the end of the conversation yeah. uh if you look at seaport village the port specifically it's in the port of san diego when it chose developers for seaport village specifically said we are going to halt our own planning initiative about what should happen on the entire waterfront here and we're just going to choose a developer and then whatever their plan is we'll write that into our plan so literally the developer will write the plan and we'll we'll just open up the floodgates, developers will propose some things and we'll choose the one we like the most. And that's basically the same approach that the mayor took to this. The RFP didn't have much in the way of requirements or restrictions 
uh, or thresholds for uh, park space or affordable housing or amenities. It sort of just said, give us your ideas. And then a bunch of people gave them their ideas. And then their idea was to whittle those ideas away. And that, like that was the culling mechanism, as opposed to saying outside at the outset what you want to happen, which yeah. could be any number of things. Um, and, and it sounds like that's what Joe LaCava would have, would have proposed. Well, it just seems like at that point, this, the city would have had that discussion of like, how much do we really want a sports arena? Does having a, an arena here really matter? And that's what we really want. And then all these other things that we really want to take that like leadership position and saying what they want as opposed to like waiting for ideas and then getting behind those ideas. Exactly. It's a leadership from behind. I think that's that's a great way to put it. We could have had a debate about do you want an arena there? We could have had a debate about how much housing and, and other amenities we want to require there, and then said, what are your proposals to help us build that? Because the private sector has to be a partner at some point in that. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the that's the thing that that Lacava has identified is that they are they are constantly taking a back seat to that vision process, and I don't know, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence, and it's it's contributing to what's leading this to become another San Diego special. Well, I'll say that in their defense or a to play devil's advocate what what they might say here is by leaving it wide open you sort of create a game of liars poker between the developers who come in to bid meaning because there's no requirements that people feel like they have to meet they just know that they're bidding against somebody else it's like a silent auction yeah and so mm-hmm. you just up all of your proposals to try to be the most attractive well what's going to make us the most attractive uh, i don't know what the other guy's going to hit and we don't have a threshold to compare it against. So I guess we should err on the high side. And you hope that you create this, you know, bidding up of more affordable housing, more amenities, yeah. more, uh, more, more public space. And, you know, maybe that's what they have in mind here. The problem with that is where we started, which is you can promise all kinds of things. Yeah, doesn't it's mean liar's you can actually poker. <laughs> deliver them. Doesn't mean it's liar's poker. It doesn't mean that the economics actually support those requirements. And so you could find yourself in a situation where somebody wins by making a series of of promises on paper that they can't deliver but by that point they've won you've eliminated the others and so now you've got uh you know a, a project that that ends up underwhelming people and so uh yeah i don't know i don't i don't know where that leaves us but it is it, it is interesting that the city council seems unenthused by the approach yeah well, one bit of news I think again to grasp out of this is that I think it's really unrealistic that the city goes forward and puts the ballot measure on the 2022 ballot, the November ballot, to raise the high limit in this area without, unless they want to go forward without a partner who might help the campaign. From time to time, we've talked about the 101 Ash Street saga. This is the high rise right near City Hall that the city of San Diego decided to lease to own so that it could put some workers to work there. The workers couldn't work there because the people who were trying to get the building ready disturbed some asbestos. And the investigations that followed provoked a lot of intriguing evidence to come out that showed that people made a lot of money in this deal, that there were some corners cut and that there's a lot of problems that the city now has in dealing with this. They're trying to settle a bunch of lawsuits that they've filed, that other people have filed so they can move on from this. But this scandal is going to dog the city for some time still. Now, our reporter, Lisa Halverstadt, has done a lot of investigative work on this and she got a hold of a deposition that the former real estate uh, chief, the leader of the real estate department, a deposition that she gave to lawyers in the case, and it had some really interesting things to say. Okay, Andrea, there, there. One of the questions you might have, and others might have, is why did the city lease to own this building as opposed to just buy it? Right. Right. Like if you got the money, buy it. Yeah. What? What's this lease to own thing? Well, people lease to own things when they can't, for whatever reason, buy it in a normal way, and that's the city's sort of position was that. Because it's so hard for the city to borrow money with different legal restrictions that they uh, found themselves in a difficult position to borrow money to buy it. So they, they at least to own is basically borrowing money from the owner, right? And then you eventually just take over operations and ownership of that building. 
That's what they did at another building right there. And they decided to apply the same deal to 101 Ash Street. Now, 101 Ash Street used to be owned by a guy named Sandy Shapery. And he had a partner named Doug Manchester. You've heard of Doug Manchester. Yes. Doug Manchester, a very notorious uh, developer in town, hotel magnate, um, Republican donor, friend of President Trump, one-time nominee to be the ambassador of the Bahamas. Didn't work out for him. And he uh, owned part of this land. Now, as the city is looking for places to put its employees, and they settle that this building is empty right next to City Hall. It's nice compared to other buildings we have. We'd like to do that. And the owners say, okay, you can buy it. Now, it would have been a lot cheaper for them to buy it, but we've kind of always wondered why they wouldn't buy it instead and do this lease to own instead with this sort of third company. Mm -hmm. So the third company, Sistera, comes in and buys it from Manchester and Shapery and then leases it to own to the city. I think one of the most interesting things that this former real estate director, Sabel Thompson, said in her deposition was that there was a meeting about this very topic. Mm-hmm. And she recalls the mayor at the time who had benefited from donations from Doug Manchester and a long network of support from him, that that was the reason that he didn't want to buy the building outright. She said, uh, quote, in this deposition, Faulkner was addressing Mary Lewis, the city's chief financial officer, when she was talking about maybe the city should buy this. And, and Faulkner said, quote, he said something along the lines of, you know, Mary, I know you're no political genius and all, but imagine the optics of me writing a check to Doug Manchester for this building. You know he's the biggest Trump-loving, gay-hating, womanizing. He went on kind of a tirade about Doug, Thompson said. So how could I possibly be seen writing a check to him? So what, he's, what, what she's saying there is that the reason he didn't do a cheaper deal for this building to house city employees was because he didn't want to be seen handing city money over to this guy. Mm-hmm. And doesn't that demonstrate that he's a political genius? Yeah, yeah it worked out politically for him on that, That's- didn't it? The way this has all worked out has demonstrated who the real political genius in that meeting was. <laughs> this just seems like something you see on TV or a movie, <sighs> Parks and Rec. I don't know. It's just it's a it's, it's a mixture of 2020 and Parks and Rec. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a couple things underneath this. Now, remember that company, Sistera, mm-hmm. that just that became this middleman to do this lease to own deal with the city. They, it turns out, had a secret contract with the city's volunteer real estate advisor, Jason Hughes, to give him 45% of the profits that they make if the city deal made this deal, or 45% of the cost he would have to pay of their losses if the city didn't do the deal. Mm -hmm. So all of these genius political considerations are happening while this guy is saying you should take this deal you should take this deal it's a great deal it's gonna work out great meanwhile he he gets a lot of money it turns out almost five million dollars if they make this deal right (laughs) what one thing that like you are told by if you know if you're, you're as a young journalist if you're lucky enough to have a mentor sometimes somebody will tell you something like you know most corruption is very subtle where they'll say, you know, sharpen your cynicism because most deals aren't corrupt. There's there's usually a stupid explanation or, you know, uh, uh, yeah. incompetence. Incompetence explains a lot more than, than malfeasance does. Right. And that is advice that would really steer you into the ditch as far as the 101 <laughs> Ash Street story is concerned. <laughs> because here all we have is the most unsubtle corruption and complete malfeasance top to bottom. <laughs> it is just the just a a pig's trough of, of <laughs> disgusting behavior. <laughs> that we would have never found out about, unfortunately, in a in a in a unless somebody just coughed it up, unless they had disturbed except that they disturbed asbestos when they were getting this building ready. If they had they moved the people in, we would none known have known none of this. Mm-hmm. Because it would have life would have gone on, and and the guy would have had his nine million dollars that he got totally out of these deals that everybody would have been moving on, and and 
just for a little bit of asbestos in the air, things got crazy. I got to say for me, though, in the story, and I told you when I when I was reading it, I was like, damn, I feel like I need like a bowl of popcorn because this is intense. (laughs) Um, Put aside like this, you know, these political geniuses figuring out these deals (laughs) and, um, you know, people getting paid on the side. Put all that aside. The part where she talks about how the city's department said that they were not equipped to oversee um, any sort of like construction or, you know, uh, I'm forgetting what the term is here, but you know, the, the, the city department said like, Hey, my staff can't handle this. Right. Yeah. So like you got to figure out, you know, who to bring in, who can handle this. And then they didn't. And then still had that same staff who said, we can't handle this, handle it. It's such a good point. The, they, they're in there saying, mayor, I know you want to move people into this building because you're getting a lot of flack that the building has been empty and is costing the city $18,000 a day or whatever it was at that yeah. time. And he's saying, you need to move people into it fast. And they're like, well, look, uh, we are not capable of overseeing that remodel. And he's like, you've got to do it. you got to do it. you got to do it. And so they end up cutting corners and they end up disturbing asbestos and ruining this hundreds of millions of dollar valued asset that they're that they're just taking on you're right that's exactly like what a tale of just incompetent leadership yeah i mean there's there's this vision of leadership that's just like just hit just ship your product just get it out just get it out get it out and i get that and you know there's pressure on me to make things Mm -hmm. like that happen but i think it's like you also have to kind of know like that something could go wrong yeah and know what needs to happen to make that possible rather than just say like just make it happen and you want to make it happen right, you know? Like yeah. I think that's what's infuriating about stories like these and 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 San Diego specials and it's like we want things to work. Like yeah. why don't you want like why do you care about like oh, you know, pounding your chest and like look, I got this deal done blah blah blah. Like who cares? Just make sure that it works and make sure that like our city employees will have a building to function properly out of. <laughs> like, well, and, and it, it's not unrelated to the political genius point. Like <laughs> it is not, it is not, it turns out political genius to in avoidance of a short-term criticism that this building is sitting empty to destroy the asset and turn it into a massive, massive <laughs> years long scandal. No, turns uh, out. And, and but also I will say I will say this. Sabelle Dobson has both said that uh, she was told that they were pursuing the more expensive lease to own deal because of the relationship with Doug Manchester that needed to be avoided for reasons of optics, and also that she remains very proud of the lease to own <laughs> deal and thinks there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, exactly. They made this deal that it was, was a more serious expensive. problem. They made this deal that was more expensive because of a of a dumb political paranoia. Uh, yeah. I, I, look, I understand that they would have been a political problem, but I'm just saying, like, they made a bad decision because of that paranoia. They they also made a decision to um, uh, fast track the process that caused a health concern and then uh, t- you know a ruining of this incredibly valuable asset. And yet, she's still proud of how it went. (laughs) Okay, there you go. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we've got reporter Will Huntsbury and his big story about a nonprofit and a house that it sold and the people who made money when they sold it again. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. 
How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. The house on the corner of Boyle Avenue in Escondido looks like most any other single-family home in the area, but the history of its recent ownership is a bit more interesting. The Affordable Senior Housing Foundation, a nonprofit, owns Oak Hill Residential Care, and that group owned that house. The nonprofit sold it, though, to a friend of one of the charity's leaders, and that was just the start of its journey through the housing market in San Diego, joining us on the phone is Will Huntsbury, our investigative reporter. Hello, Will. Hi, y'all. Can you help us understand what happened to that house? So why did they sell it? Who did they sell it to? And why is that interesting? Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of players. It's a complicated story, but let's see if we can like walk through this in a, in a way where it's easy to understand. Um, yeah. Affordable Senior Housing Foundation, they're a nonprofit that runs a senior center, and they owned this house in August of 2020. And at that time, Zillow estimated the house was worth about $505,000. But at that time, the, the people who ran the charity decided to sell it, and not for that. They sold it for $150,000, and they sold it to a friend of the nonprofit's chief financial officer. So, you know, that was a under market sale. And those are things that are frequently investigated by the people who investigated those things. But the, the story didn't stop there. Next, that friend sold the house to another friend of the charity's executives. Neither time was it marketed on the, uh, on the open market. And during this next sale, the house went for $350,000. The, the price was skyrocketing, mind you. The real estate market was firing. Zillow estimated at this point, just a few months later, it's worth $624,000. He sells it to three fifty dollars for three fifty dollars to another friend of the charity's executives. They, within a month, they put it on the market, have a deal pending within days for $624,000. And they did manage to sell it for that. So basically, these charity executives sold off one of their assets at under market value, and their friends made a lot of money from that. Now, it's not uncommon for people to purchase a home and, and put money into it and then flip it. Uh, but that first owner, my understanding from your story is, did not do anything like that. Right. So the first owner, his name was Eric Bills. He's a friend of the chief financial officer. Um, he gets it for 150 and he told me he did not make any improvements to the house. And uh, he managed to sell it for $350,000. Um, I will say he said the house was not in a livable condition when he sold it. And one of the charity's executives told me it had no walls, quote. But I, I think that sale just goes to show us that the house was worth 350000 at bare minimum because he made no improvements to it, um, and he sold it for cash without marketing it for 350 Well, how did the charity come to own this house, and did they use it for something, or what was it? Sure. The backstory is kind of interesting here. So... Affordable Senior Housing Foundation, they own a senior care center called Oak Hill Residential Care. It's in Escondido. They bought it in 2017 for about $18 million. And part of that deal was for them to buy this house across the street that served as a storage center for uh, the senior centers. So that's how they ended up with 1385 Oak Hill Drive. It kind of sits across from the senior care center. And, you know, they actually did talk to me for this story, um, but then they kind of went silent. And so I approached them and they're like, actually, 
we have a really good reason that all this happened. We'll tell you all about it. We'll provide you documentation. They did not provide that documentation, but the story they told me about 1385 Oak Hill Drive is that they wanted to refinance all of their properties with a HUD loan. And that HUD loan was going to save them a lot of money. And to get that HUD loan, you need a bank appraisal. And when they got the bank appraisal, 1385 Oak Hill Drive was accidentally left out of it. And so when that happened, HUD was like, well, we can't go through with this loan because the loan has to be against all your pieces of property. You either have to sell it or you have to restart the HUD process. And so they were like, well, gosh, we got to sell it because, you know, we would lose so much money by not getting this HUD loan. And so they say that is why they sold it without marketing it very much and for under market value to essentially one of their friends. Mm. There's nothing in what HUD said that said you have to just sell it as soon as possible without putting it on the open market, which, by the way, was moving properties quite fast at that point. Yeah, properties were moving super fast at that point. And, you know, they, I, I asked them to show me documentation for what HUD said to them. They did not provide me anything. And, and I asked HUD for documentation too, who also didn't provide me anything. I think there was a there was that part of your story as well. Like all this obviously this asset had value and it had value for, for multiple people as they exchanged it. There's another part though about just how um, intertwined this organization was with some of its uh, business interests that some of its um, main players had. So can you walk us through any, some of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, you know, I, I didn't know quite what I was getting into when I started yeah. this story. <laughs> and it turned out there were a lot of like corporate entities involved and a lot of names. But let's go back to Affordable Senior Housing Foundation. It is run by Matthew Parks and Tom Sutton. And that's the CEO and the CFO, according to the most recent filings that the Secretary of State has. And those guys also are part owners or even uh, the major and main owners in um, two companies that do business with the nonprofit. So let's start with the ones they're the main uh, owners of. This is what they told me. It's a company called Tory Pines Development Group, and it brokers commercial real estate acquisitions. And so I, I mentioned that in 2017, affordable senior housing, it buys this senior center for $18 million. And uh, Matthew Parks, he's the CEO of the nonprofit at that time, but he's also a major owner and operator of Tory Pines along with Tom Sutton. And they brokered that deal and they made $540,000 off of it. Now they say that came out of the seller's end. And I think that's part of, you know, wh why they think it was legally okay. They say they actually received a legal opinion saying how okay such a deal was. They said they were gonna provide it to me. Again, it's something they did not provide to me. You know, it, it is, it's not necessarily illegal for you to control both sides of a transaction as they did in this case, you know, but it has to be done at fair market value. They say it was, you know, it also frequently triggers additional disclosure with the IRS when these types of deals are supposed to be happening. And that's because, you know, they can, they can lead to an appearance of conflict of interest. And that's why like a lot of nonprofits avoid doing deals like that to begin with, because they just want to like, avoid the appearance of any conflict. Do we have any idea why they formed this nonprofit? And I know they were able to take advantage of certain tax and you know financing things that come along with it, but are they operating uh, care centers right now? Yes, I mean, they, they're also in, involved, they're also part owners of a company called Bayshire, which was founded by Scott Kirby. And Bayshire, like, provide services or even run some senior centers. Basically, it provides the staffing, the management, the bookkeeping. And so Bayshire is the service provider for Oak Hill Residential Care, which is owned by Affordable Senior, Fam Affordable Senior Housing Foundation. 
Matthew Parks also started another charity, one called Sequoia Affordable Housing Foundation. That one owns another uh, senior center in Vista. And, uh, you know, it's, it appears to be the same structure. It's a nonprofit started by Parks. It does business with Bayshire. We don't know if it's done business uh, with Tory Pines. But, yeah, I mean, that, you know, essentially – these guys are involved in multiple parts of the senior care industry. And what they told me when they did grant me an interview is that, you know, they were new to working inside of nonprofits. So, you know, I, I think they've been working in the senior care industry for uh, quite some time, nearly a decade. But, the, you know, bringing these nonprofits into the equation seems to be new for them. Yeah. Well, if you have any information about potential corruption or just things that don't seem to add up to you, Will will investigate it. You'll see some more promotion from us about Will and his, his investigative role here at Voice as he digs into things like this. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, thank you. And how can people get a hold of you? Go will at voicesandiego.org, right? Will at voicesandiego.org. You can check my Twitter. You can find how to get up with me uh, through Signal there. You know, this this was a tip. Um, and, you know, we thrive on, on those, like, anonymous tips uh, that point these things out. You know, big stories require people coming forward like that. So please reach out. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this part of San Diego. We will see you next week at our in-person event, May the 4th. Be with you. Here we go. Cafe X. Get the details at vosd.org slash events. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, and Andrea Lopez Villafana is our managing editor. Andrew Keats is also our managing editor. Nate John's our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.